Welcome to the Logically Faithful Show. This is Caldoon Swice. I have a special guest today, uh, one of my apologetic heroes, Dr. Frank Turek. Welcome. Caldoon, great being with you. How are things out there in the Windy City? Oh, man, we finally got some sun today, brother. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I hear it's beautiful there in the summer. The whole week is just wonderful. Yeah, it is, yeah. Uh, you are an award-winning author and co-author of four books. I'll give you a proper introduction here. Stealing from God, I love that title, and the book itself. Uh, why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. I'll be asking you about these as we move on. Okay. Uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Correct, not politically correct, and legislating morality, mm-hmm. which is a book, Frank, I've been using for the last, I think it was uh, almost seven years now in my ethics courses at the City Colleges of Chicago. Um, so thank you for that book. It's been instrumental for many people. Some people oh, want to, yeah, they want to burn it, and others want to lift it up and share it with everyone they know. <laughs> you mean the legislating morality book? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious, the people who don't agree with uh, much of what's in the book, do they nevertheless agree that everyone's trying to legislate morality? Yes, yes. The basic thesis you make, the basic, the hypothesis that everyone legislates morality, no matter what their position is, is uh, something they can't disagree with. I think it's more based on emotions and dispositions and biases uh, for the disagreements uh, with your arguments, rather than logically con- uh, chronological syllogisms. Right. Well, as, as long as they, they understand that everyone's trying to put a moral position into law, then I'm gratified that at least they recognize that because I'm so tired of hearing people say you can't legislate morality when everybody on all sides of any debate is trying to impose a moral position. You know, I want to go through some of your um, some of the background on that on that thesis. Let's sure. see. Uh, recently, you actually met with. Um, uh, for some people, he's a hero. For others, he's uh, a devil incarnate. Um, Donald. Trump, our president, you recently sat with him with 35 other leaders. Yeah, a couple of times just before he was elected, I was invited to go meet with him and about 30 other Christian um, so-called leaders who were kind of on the fence about Uh Trump. And so we went to the Trump Tower and met with him. And then uh, there was another meeting here in Charlotte where I brought some religious leaders in to ask him questions before he spoke here. This is couple of weeks before the election in 2016. So, okay. yeah, I had a couple opportunities to, uh, to interact with uh, who is now the, the current president, obviously. What a wonderful opportunity. Um, what was your impression of him as a person, as a leader, uh, just at a personal level? I think, you know, what you see is what you get. I mean, he is who he is. He's bombastic, but he did listen. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, a lot of people asked him questions, and he responded. And I don't know. I found that Pretty much what he says he was going to do, he's tried to do. He hasn't succeeded in everything, but mm-hmm. he's not somebody that says something and then doesn't do it. At least it seems to me generally that's the case. Maybe maybe there are instances where he hasn't followed through, but um, the things that he said he wanted to do, he, he, he at least tried to do. So I found that refreshing to a certain extent. I think generally for me, Trump gets an A on policy and a D on demeanor. You know, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? I, mean uh-huh. I generally agree with his policy positions. I just don't always agree with how he goes about uh, carrying himself, you know, the petty tweets and the name calling and that kind of stuff. You know, I don't, I don't agree with any yeah. of that. Although, in a certain sense, in my, my sin nature, it's gratifying. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> because Trump is the kind of guy that, you know, he's kind of the bully that shows up on the playground 
who beats up the bullies who've been beating you up for the past 30 or 40 years. You know what I mean? It's like, finally, there's somebody here saying something that needs to be said and doing something that needs to be done. So Yeah, that's that's a good analogy you give there. Let, let me um, let me draw this back to the, the thesis that we just started uh-huh. with, which is legislating morality. So many claim that Trump and his ill and the people in the conservative branch are legislating their point of view upon the culture, whether it's the, the uh, sexual agenda or the religious one or even yeah. uh, foreign policy, etc. And uh, the others are claiming, no, we just want freedom. But you're arguing, no, it's the same on the other side. Can you uh, unpack that for us? Yeah, everybody's trying to impose a moral point of view. Take, uh, let's just take a very divisive issue, abortion, right? Everybody's trying to impose something. The pro-life side wants to impose continued pregnancy on the mother. But the pro-abortion side wants to impose death on the baby whenever abortion is chosen. Both sides are arguing for moral positions. The pro-life side says a baby has a moral right to life, and notice the pro-abortion side says a woman has a moral right to choose what she does with her own body. Now, generally, that's true. You do have generally a right to do what you do, what you want to do with your own body, but not if you kill somebody else in the process. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but both sides are trying to impose a moral point of view. And when people come up to me and say, "Well, don't impose your religion on me," I say, "Look, I'm not trying to impose religion. I'm not trying to tell people where, when, how, or if to worship, or you have to be a member of a certain church, or you have to get involved in certain rites and rituals. I'm not trying to impose religion on you, but I am trying to impose morality." And that's what everybody tries to do. Everybody's trying to impose a moral position. Both sides in the abortion debate are trying to impose it. All sides in the marriage debate are trying to impose it. The question isn't whether or not you can legislate morality. The question is whose morality will you legislate? And Caldoun, when people say to me, don't impose your morality on me, I have two responses. Mm-hmm. My first response is, why not? Would that be immoral? Because... <laughs> You're imposing your morality on me right now. You're saying I ought not impose ought nots, but you're imposing your ought not on me. You're imposing your own moral position on me by saying I can't impose my moral position. But actually, the better response is this. When people say don't impose your morality on me, I say this isn't my morality. I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't make up the fact that murder's wrong, that abortion's wrong, that theft is wrong, that rape is wrong, that men were made for women and women were made for men. And the best way to perpetuate and stabilize society, which is the reason the government is involved in marriage to begin with, it's not to recognize that John loves Mary or Bill loves Steve. The reason the government's involved in marriage is to perpetuate and stabilize society. I didn't make up the fact that the best way to perpetuate and stabilize society is to legally recognize the man-woman relationship over any other sexual relationship. I didn't make up that morality. This isn't my morality. This just happens to be the morality. This is the morality Thomas Jefferson said was self-evident. This is the morality the Apostle Paul said the Gentiles are not of the law of the law written on their hearts. In other words, we didn't invent this. This is the morality we're recognizing. It's not my morality. It's not your morality. It just happens to be the morality. Now, if you have a problem with that, if you don't like the morality, you don't have a problem with me. I didn't make it up. This morality is based on the nature of the creator. And if there is no creator, there's no right or wrong to anything. Okay. Uh, those are powerful words. Let me uh, let me put on my hat here because many of my listeners and the people listening here uh, come from a secular perspective. Let me uh, let me take some of their um, uh, let me take the microphone for them. Who do you think you are telling us that you have some kind of 
connection to this numus that God Emmanuel Kant talked about, this realm outside of ourselves we as human, as human beings cannot even grasp, let alone see. So then we have to conjuncture and make these rules called morality to, um, to, to bring that forward. For example, the United Nations has these 30 human rights um, uh, hum, that we all have to follow. And they base it on some kind of the moral law passed down by Aquinas and others, and um, articulated by Aristotle and Recently, others have been discussing this on a high level, academic level, uh, McIntyre. However, when you come down to the average Joe, the average person in the street, uh, you have these um, systems of morality that don't seem to connect. The dots don't seem to connect for them. You have Christians even on the the, the spectrum, honest, Bible-believing Christians who are on the left and then those who are on the right. So, although even if there is a morality, as you claim there is, being able to articulate what that is in an absolute or objective sense is impossible for us. Therefore, we can embrace a form of relativism, even if it's theoretical, if not practical, at least uh, a a John Lockean type of um, contract where we can agree to disagree on certain prospects. Um, How do you deal with those types of objections uh, for people who bring that to you? Well, first of all, that's a moral objection right there. They're presupposing an objective standard of morality to say there are no objective standards of morality. In other words, when somebody says, who are you, what right do you have to impose that view on us? That's implying that it would that it's wrong for me to impose my view of morality on you. Uh-huh. Well, look, morality is just relative. Okay. Then there's nothing wrong with me doing whatever you just said I shouldn't do because there is no ultimate right or wrong according to you. But secondly, the same person who says that is going to be the same person uh, that's going to object as soon as I say something that he doesn't agree with morally. And in many cases from the left, that might be the right to abortion or the right to same-sex marriage or transgenderism or, you know, whatever the current, the current uh, ethical, cultural ethos is. They're going to claim I'm wrong for opposing it. Right. Well, wait a minute. I can't be wrong if there is no objective morality. Objective morality is not difficult to know. It's just difficult to follow. Okay. What if I were someone who did not subscribe to this, to the biblical worldview or the Quranic worldview, which is the grow, one of the growing highest growing numbers of uh, the segments in the demographic, the nuns. Where are they getting their morality from then on a deep epistemological level? Well, you see, that's that's the problem, Khaldun, is they are um, they are living off the remnants of a Christian worldview and they don't even recognize it. Because if there is no God, there's no right to anything. Everything's just a matter of opinion. Uh, one of the problems with the human rights, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the, uh, the U.N. statement on human rights is yeah. it's it's groundless. They don't ground it in anything. They just say, we're declaring these are human rights. Now, Thomas Jefferson and his co-founders were very brilliant. They wanted to have objective moral values without the intolerance of a sectarian religion. So what did they say? They said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are endowed by their government. No. Endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then he goes on to say... That governments are instituted among men not to create these rights, but to secure these rights. In other words, governments are put into place to prevent innocent people from being harmed. 
And governments are there to ensure that people have their rights protected. Governments don't give you rights. Governments shouldn't take away your rights. They simply protect the rights that come from God. Now, our government was founded on theism. If you don't like that, well, then you can go to another place and live, okay? Mm-hmm. If, if, but if there is no theistic God, if there is no, no standard outside of ourselves, then nobody has a right to anything. That's just, that's just the way things are. There's got to be a grounding outside of ourselves or beyond ourselves. Otherwise, we're all just reduced to human opinion, and we have no ability then to judge another culture. Like, we couldn't judge the Nazis, Unless there's a standard beyond our government and beyond their government that says that this is the right way to behave and being a Nazi is the wrong way to behave. In fact, the Nazis tried to say, we were just following our government. And at the Nuremberg trials, we said, well, there's a standard beyond your government. It's called international law, the moral law. Thomas Jefferson called it nature's law. Mm -hmm. Paul calls it the law written on your hearts in Romans chapter 2. That law supersedes your government. Otherwise, there's no way to adjudicate between the Allies and the Nazis. Let's draw this then to this the um, the main two maxims of the Christian worldview: truth and love. How do we link these together, Frank? Um, let me give you a, an example so we can ground this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who found out I was giving a lecture in downtown Chicago, and he asked me what it was about. I told him it was about the problem of evil, you know, the most the easiest problem to solve. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, I was being facetious, of course. And then um, he, he told me he can't come. I told him why. He said, because you're talking about God and I'm going to hell. I told him, I told him why do you say that? He said, because I'm gay. I'm mm-hmm. not allowed in a place like that. Hmm? Wow, um, that opened up a conversation with us, and I told him that um, you know people don't get to, get to heaven because they're heterosexual. That's right. <laughs> it's a lot deeper issue than this. And, and right. after, at the end of the conversation, he called me back and told me, you know, the, the things he said to me, um, they, it made me cry. I, I never realized that God even cared for me as an individual. Um, mm. But I, how do you draw then for us for people who want to connect love and truth and balance that out? Yeah, well, I would say that what you said to him, you don't get to heaven because you're heterosexual. (laughs) I mean, um, all of us are on our way to separation from God unless we accept the free gift of his sacrifice. Mm. Uh, And so we're all fallen. And part of the problem is the Christian church has been so pharisaical in some of its dealings with the general public. They've been pointing their finger at everybody else when, in fact— we're, ju- we're just as much sinners as anybody else. That's why we need a Savior. I mean, quote, say, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, you know, the homosexuals are not going to hurt the kingdom of God. Yeah, well, who else does he say won't hurt the kingdom of God in that passage? Oh, the long list. Covetous. Yeah. Yeah, we're all covetous. Yeah. So everybody's implicated in that passage. But what does he say after that? He says, that's what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified. So all of us are separated from God without the sacrifice of Christ, and everybody, regardless of how they self-identify themselves, are eligible for that free gift of salvation. Mm. Um, Your life speaks so loud, I cannot hear what you're saying. When that that, that hypothesis is powerful for us, isn't it? Can you unpack it and and how you deal with apologetics in in your own ministry for people? Uh, well, yeah, obviously, if you're if you don't exhibit both grace and truth, 
first of all, truth unvarnished is too harsh for people. None of us really want to hear the truth most of the time, right? <laughs> no, too painful. Because if we hear the truth, then we're just, it's, it's too brutal to us. Yes. But if, if we have all grace and no truth, then we're, 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 we're never convicted. We're never, we don't realize we need a Savior. So Jesus gave both grace and truth, and that, that is the most difficult thing. You know, a lot of people will ask me, how come I don't get mad at people who ask questions, you know, during college campus events, or when they, when they are hostile to my point of view? And I say, why should I expect everyone to believe what I believe? I mean, I'm not the same person I was, say, 20 years ago. I believe things differently now than I did 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Everyone's at some point in either a spiritual progression or regression. And so why should I expect everyone to believe just like I do? <laughs> they have questions. I, I still have questions. Everyone has questions. So when someone asks a, questions or, or a question or gets upset, it doesn't offend me personally. Why should it? <laughs> and uh, so I just try and show people both grace and truth and you know no one does this perfectly jesus did but yeah i'm certainly not good at it and even he was still hated yeah um yeah yeah you, you, you can be a you can give 100 percent grace and truth they still might crucify you <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> exactly yeah that's that's very optimistic there um mm-hmm. okay uh frank let's um let's draw this on a higher uh, level here uh you are um, in your position, and uh, I do recommend people take a look at crossexamine.org, which is a brilliant website, full a plethora of information and details there, which I highly recommend, as well as a YouTube channel where you can see Frank's uh, answers to college questions uh, from students. The, the question I want to ask you is on um, the, the political spectrum, which you're heavily in. As I mentioned to you previously in my conversation, there are believers, Bible believers, who are on, on the other side of the spectrum with you on abortion, homosexuality, global warming, uh, uh, the, the deal with Iran, whatever it is. Um, on what basis or what criteria do you use to determine what you believe to be the case to be true? Um, is there some kind of um, a list, uh, some kind of criteria that you can help us with? Uh, so we can you mean when it comes arms. to politics? Not just political issues, but I think the, the political issues connected to the moral issues, which are yeah. rooted, yeah, in, in our nature. So, can you can you unpack that for us? How do you how do you help somebody see? Look, there are people on different sides of the spectrum who are both Christians, but they disagree heavily. Oh, well, well, how yeah, does that happen? Well, well, how do you unpack that? Yeah, well, I, I, it depends on the issue. Obviously, it's hard to speak generally about yeah. such issues, but I think we start. To understand truth, just like anybody, we start with the laws of logic and then our five senses, and then we use the laws of logic and our five senses to draw conclusions about reality, about the real world, and uh, and then you go from there. Now, I think general morality is written on all of our hearts. Of course, we can be talked out of it. We can be propagandized out of it. Uh, we can have our baloney meters uh, knocked out of whack, so to speak, mm-hmm. All right. by bad education. Right. And that, that's done quite frequently in education and the media, unfortunately. There's a lot of propaganda out there. Um, and that's just what Satan wants. He wants our baloney meters, so to speak, to be knocked out of whack. But generally, we know basic right and wrong. And I think uh, you don't need the Bible to know basic right and wrong. So when I argue with people on moral issues... I don't often bring up the Bible because I don't think the Bible is necessary to show that, say, abortion is wrong or that marriage should be between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. 
um, and that uh, divorce is something we ought to shun. In fact, a lot of uh, Christians are don't seem to realize that the reason same-sex marriage is in place is not because the LGBTQ movement did most of the heavy lifting. The, the people who did most of the heavy lifting were the Christians who bought into no-fault divorce. Mm. And they bought into no-fault divorce, which basically sent the message to people that marriage is merely about the the romantic desires of adults. Mm. Because if you don't need any real reason to get out of a marriage, you just feel like you're not in love anymore, then marriage really isn't about children. It's not really about perpetuating the stabilized, stabilizing society. It's just all about the romantic desires of adults. Well, if it's just all about the romantic desires of adults, then why shouldn't you just be able to marry any adult, regardless of gender? In other words... Right. Same-sex marriage just makes marriage genderless. Well, mm. no-fault divorce basically made marriage genderless as well. Mm. It just basically said that marriage isn't really about gender. It's really only about romance. Yes, it was. Okay, so it, it, it's really, mm. I see it's, it's really the fault of Christians mm-hmm. and other people who bought into no-fault divorce because they wanted to make... Uh, they wanted life to be easier for them. At least it was perceived easier. You know, if they were in a bad marriage, they could get out easily. Right. Now, obviously, sometimes you can get a good result from a bad policy. In other words, no-fault divorces helped some people who were in really bad, abusive marriages, right? Yeah, because there are some people who really are in difficult circumstances. Yes. For all my listeners, we're not, we're not making a general claim here. Um, I don't think Frank is. I think um, – go ahead, Frank. But I'm, I'm just saying from an overall perspective, from yes. a societal perspective, it's a disaster. Yes, for that, especially growing on the LBGT and any, anybody and anyone getting married to anything or, multi, or uh, polygamy, right, can jump into that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really uh, destroyed. It's really left deep scars on children, which has left deep scars on an entire generation. No-fault divorce has done that. And same-sex marriage is just a, a uh, outcome of the wrong view that the majority took on marriage when it began to accept no-fault divorce. Hmm. Let's um, let's go back then to what are the roots of all of this. Uh, Christ talks about the darkening of the eyes, which is a uh, a type of um, a volcanic explosion uh, that that came on the spectrum of the human race, and this caused sin to be uh, unable to see. The spiritual, the, the the transcendent, and the the eyes of the unbelieving heart are are darkened. They cannot see the spiritual mm-hmm. truths. Is what it says in Romans. Uh, with that said, let's let's get into um the, the the other part of the interview that I wanted to discuss with you, which is the hiddenness of God. Mm. Um, not only do some Christians struggle with this, but of course some uh, many people who who are leading toward the the non perspective. That I cannot see the evidence. I, I honestly don't see the evidence for God in the world or in my life or in the readings you're giving me. Therefore, mm. I seem to be justified in my belief that there isn't a God and I'll live as, as such. Can you, um, can you address that type of question, especially with the pain that it generates for many people? Um, yeah, in their circumstances? well, first of all, when people say there's no evidence for God, the question I ask them is, why is there evidence for anything? Mm. Okay. I mean, anything. Why is there evidence that two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen makes water? Why is there evidence that trees exist? Or why is there evidence that uh, two plus two equals four? 
Or why is there evidence that smoking causes cancer? Or I mean, anything. Why is there evidence for anything? The reason there's evidence for anything is because this is a rational world with reliable cause and effect. And we have minds that can ascertain truths about the natural world. Now, that is much better explained by theism than it is by materialistic atheism. In other words, why should we expect this to be, first of all, why should we expect there to be a universe at all if there is no God? And secondly, why should we expect our ability to ascertain truths about those real world to actually exist? Why, why should we be even able to understand truths hmm. about reality? Why, why should rationality exist if there, is no, if there is no God? Because look, as the atheists say, and I point this out quite frequently in our book, um, Stealing from God, yes. they're claiming that they're the reasonable ones, but they've made reason impossible by their materialistic ideology. If we're just molecular machines, if there is no immaterial realm, if we don't have a mind, we just have a brain. If every thought we have is completely the result of the laws of physics, in other words, we're moist robots, if that's the case, why should we believe anything is true? Why should we believe that atheism is true? Or Christianity is true? Or anything is true? Hmm. If we're just molecular machines. Well, we're not just molecular machines. There's an immaterial realm. We have minds, not just brains. We have souls, not just bodies. There are the laws of logic which are immaterial. The laws of justice which are immaterial. The laws of math which are immaterial. Right. Love is immaterial. Mm-hmm. These things are all immaterial realities that everybody believes in, but only a theist can justify. Atheists can't justify. So... The very fact that we live in a reliable cause and effect universe where we can ascertain truths about the real world with our minds is much better explained by theism than it is by atheism. So when people say there's no evidence for God, I just say, why is there evidence for anything? And you you, you wind up back at a theistic universe. I see. But, okay, and this goes back to my earlier question then. Uh, So John Lennox uh, recently debated Peter Atkins. Both are yes. world-class scholars in their field. Mm-hmm. Both are high-level intellectuals. One believes and bows his knee to God in Christ. The other bows his knee to reason in science or perceived science, materialism. How could that be? Two different perspectives. The evidence is there, as you're saying, but they're not. They're both seeing it differently. Well, yeah, they're both seeing it differently, but if you press Atkins as to why... Uh, he should believe anything he believes. He can't give an answer. Yeah, I hear because, a lot of ad hominems coming out of that. Too. Yes, he, 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 calls, he, he calls John Lennox, who is the nicest man in the universe, he calls him <laughs> names. Right? <I> mean, <laughs> now, you dealt with these things. You've debated uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, David Silver, Silverman, and others. Uh, well, yeah, but I, I don't mind being called names. That doesn't bother me. It just shows the vacuousness of their position. Mm. Um, because... Uh, if you can't justify why you can reason, if you can't justify why you can know anything at all, then why should you even believe atheism is true? Again, if we're just moist robots, uh, then we shouldn't believe anything's true, including our atheism. Is there and, an analogy you can help people with to see how it is that one, one individual well-educated can go this route? And one individual, well-educated, can go the other route. Why well, is look, it that, that happens? Look, what is it at a deep subconscious level? For, uh, is there an analogy, illustration? 
let me just point out what some atheists have said. For example, Thomas Nagel. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yes, yes, one of my favorites, yeah. Yeah, Thomas Nagel wrote a book in 2011 called Mind and Consciousness, how the neo-Darwinian view of the reality is almost certainly false. And he is a materialist himself. (laughs) And he's saying materialism doesn't work for the reasons I've already talked about. And what he says is, I I don't just disbelieve in God. He said, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be the way it is. He said, one of the things that bothers me, and I'm paraphrasing now, he says, one of the things that bothers me the most is that some of the most intelligent people I know are religious believers. <laughs> yeah. And he said, look, I have a cosmic authority problem. I don't want there to be a God. He, think, he said, I think Christopher Hitchens had that same problem. Uh, the same thing is true with uh, Richard Dawkins. And this is why the question I ask people quite frequently is, particularly on a college campus, if they're atheists, I just ask them, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And I've had atheists stand at the microphone in front of hundreds of people, and they say, no. And then hmm. I say, what? No. Wait, wait, you claim to be reasonable. Right. Why would you be a Christian if it were true? Because they don't want it to be true. So, the issue is that, so it's not about truth on a deep level. It's something else. What is it? Well, it's, it's the will. They don't want there to be a God because they want moral autonomy. They'll admit this. They'll say that in fact, Christopher Hitchens famously said, I can't believe in God. I can't believe in a cosmic North Korean dictator peering in on our sex lives. Right. Now, Hitchens was great with analogies yes. and rhetoric. Yeah, he was. I mean, if you're an atheist, that's great imagery, right? That God is peering in on us, and we don't want that. So for him, it was all about sexual freedom, it seemed to be. And I find that quite frequently that's the issue. The issue on a college campus is not evidence. The issue or the elephant in the room on a college campus is sex. They don't want anybody saying that there are rules about sex. Yet, on the other hand, they'll say the Me Too movement is important. (laughs) Yeah. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Right. Now, you're you're bringing, and I believe it is important, by the way. I'm just pointing out that you're bringing in a moral category and no way way to justify that moral category or that moral principle. So, you're slitting your own philosophical throat, basically. Yeah. 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 Uh, Well, let's draw the analogy then for our uh, secular friends. We want to put the nails in the coffin of God when we don't realize that he has already put the nails in his son. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. In fact, I think it was uh, Aldous Huxley who uh, wrote Brave New World who said, I had motives for believing the world was meaningless because a creator got in the way of our sexual mores. In other words, a creator got in the way of what we wanted to do sexually, and we don't want that. We don't want anybody claiming that there are rights and wrongs when it comes to sex. Mm. And God seems to do that. Now, by the way, God does that for our benefit, not for his. Right. He, he's not the one losing here. Yeah. yeah. I suppose uh, another analogy, I don't know if you'll agree with this, or maybe you can unpack this. It's like um, a flower who tells the son, I'm not interested in you anymore. And the son mm. says, okay. Now, who's the one who's going to uh, lose here? Who's going? <laughs> That's right. No, no, not the son. The flower is going to fade slowly. Slowly. Yeah, that's good. That's a good way of putting it. That's yeah. what will happen to us. Let's uh, let's draw this uh, interview then to an end here. So a number of years ago, about 13, 14 years ago, I lost my son, Frank. It was well, one what of the, happened? It was one of the darkest times of my life. Um, he was born with the, uh, without the ability to breathe. Oh, no. And he died in my arms. Uh. Um, it was a terrible period for me. Although I was a believer, it was... It was um, it took some time, but my grounding in theology and apologetics were the anchor God used to let me hold on to this. To mm. not tell him this is not some kind of cosmic joke. There's something real here, regardless of how I feel, regardless of how dark 
It is. Right. Um, I'll help our listeners who are listening to you now. Why do you continue doing what you're doing? And I'm sure you've gone through your own set of tragedies in your own life or mm. the people around you that you love and cherish. Why do you continue to do what you do with cross-examined and others in spite of the misery that sometimes happens to us on a, on a global level or even a personal level? What is it that motivates Frank Turek to continue doing what he's doing and to help those who are right now listening who are in deep pain? Well, let me ask you a question. I don't know if this was is, was true when it happened to you, Khaldun, but it seems to me that when something tragic like that happens, a baby, your own baby dies. I mean, what could be worse than that, right? Um, did you have a deep sense that it things shouldn't be this way? Did that ever come to your mind? Absolutely, yes. It was it was like echoing in the in the howls of the, my mind. Yes. Well, whenever we say that. And, and it might not make sense when you're in the in the throes of an emotion emotional period like that. But when you can step back from it and get some perspective, when you look at the the reason behind it, I think we realize that if we're going to say something ought not be a certain way, we're implying a standard about how things ought to be. Okay. That baby shouldn't die. That this is a real evil. And if there's a real evil, then there must be a real standard of good. But if there's a real standard of good, an objective standard of good, that can only be grounded in God's nature. If it's not grounded in God's nature, then it's not really objectively good. It's just my opinion or your opinion. Hmm. So in, in, a, in a backhanded way, evil actually shows there is a God. Hmm. I mean, evil doesn't disprove God. It may prove there's a devil out there, but it doesn't disprove God because there wouldn't be such a thing as evil unless there was good, and there wouldn't be something called good in an objective sense anyway unless God existed. I suppose in a sense his silence sometimes is louder than his presence. Yeah, that's the that's the bigger issue, I think. It's not... The, the harder question isn't... Um, well, if, why is there evil? We know why there's evil because this is a fallen world and we have free choice. And and if we don't have, if 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 we don't have free will, then this isn't a moral universe to begin with. I mean, God could have created robots, but that wouldn't have been the same as creating free creatures. So we know why evil exists. The bigger question is why does God allow it to continue to such a degree? Yes, that's that's the harder question to answer. And I think the one thought that helped me through difficulty. Yes. It's something known as the ripple effect. Okay. And the ripple effect says that everything that occurs in life ripples forward to affect billions or trillions of other events and people. So when somebody asks me why does the baby die, I can't say why I know a particular baby dies, but I know why babies die in general because we live in a fallen world. But a baby dying could ripple forward into the future to maybe say 500 years from now, bring forth the great evangelist who saves millions of people. Hmm. Now, can we trace all those ripples about how a baby dying today could affect so many other events that ultimately it helps bring a great evangelist 500 years from now? No, we can't trace all that. But God can. God can see the ripples and how they affect eternity, time and eternity. So the ripple effect can explain why we can't explain the unexplainable. Right. Interesting. Why, you know, why did uh, 9-11 happen or why did that tsunami happen? Or Well, I, I can't always explain how it all happens and how it's all going to work out. 
but God can because he's outside of time. I mean, one biblical example, of course, is Joseph in the Old Testament. You know, he sold into slavery by his brothers. Right. And then, to make a long story short, he winds up in a place in prominence in Egypt. He puts uh, aside a lot of grain. And then the very family that sold him into slavery leads Israel to come to Egypt to escape a famine. And Joseph is then in a place to help them. And so what does he say to them? When he sees them, he says, you dirty rats, you're going to pay for what you did to me. No, what does he say? He says, what you meant for evil, God intended for good, the saving of many lives. In effect, the evil that his own brothers did to him rippled forward to actually help them later. Hmm. Hmm. Now, you don't always see that, right? You might not see the positive ripples that came from the tragic death of your child. You might not see that in your life. But God can bring forth positive things from it, even things we don't see. So, so it does come down to this light in the darkness that we you trust. It comes down to that, that one word, doesn't it? Hope and trust? Yeah, but it's trust not based on no evidence. It's based on good evidence. In other words, trust okay. or faith isn't blind faith. Okay. Trust is based on, faith is believing in what you have good evidence to believe, or trusting in what you have good evidence to believe. Hmm. And this, this was God's entire point to Job. Okay. You know, Job, you can see all the good I've done in nature. You got you need to trust me with the moral universe as well. Hmm. That's so and, and if you, by the way, if you read uh, Hebrews chapters eleven and twelve, the famous chapter on faith, the entire thing is predicated on you can trust in God, even though you might not be able to get the promises mm-hmm. that God has promised you in this life, you can trust God because what he's done through the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ. Yes. Yes, yes. Okay. And the evidence for that is <laughs> overwhelming. Unless you, you've examined that over and over again on your own, in your own work. Yes. Yeah. Well, Frank... Um, it's been exhilarating. It's been uh, very helpful for me I, I'm, for many others, I'm sure, as well. Um, any final words for our, uh, uh, our listeners? Well, I would say if you're searching, just keep searching, seeking, you will find. Um, and uh, if any of our resources can help you do that, then we're happy about it. We have a, uh, the books you mentioned, but we also have an app that people can download. It's two words in the app store, cross-examined. Mm-hmm. In the app store, they can download that. And you also mentioned our YouTube channel. We've got about 500 videos up there. Most of them are short videos, like mm-hmm. two to five minutes. <laughs> they might attention span, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they're Q&A videos from the college campus. So you, you've had, you know, you get asked a lot of different questions. And so we just take those Q&As and we put them up there on our YouTube channel so people can learn more that way. If they want to go into more depth, we have TV we have a podcast or a radio program every week that's about an hour long. TV's an hour long. And uh, we also have the books you mentioned, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, uh, Stealing from God and Others, Legislating Morality Correct, Not Politically Correct. So, right. And now we have online courses we're teaching at crossexamine.org by me and others. So there's plenty of resources people can get. We have a whole series of uh, DVDs and books uh, at crossexamine.org if they click on stores. There's a lot of different places they can go to get resources. And I strongly recommend these uh, for for, you, for our listeners, Frank. Frank, it's been uh, exhilarating. It's been wonderful. Thank you for, for the honor of uh, this conversation. Well, thanks, Caldoon.